This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthcare decision makers and thought leaders in the hot seat. I'm Gunnar Esiason. Today in the show, we talked to Dr. David Fagenbaum about his life with Castleman Disease, the work he's doing with the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, and his best-selling book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Dr. Fagenbaum's story is one that is all too common in the world of rare diseases. Crushing illness suddenly sets in without a proper diagnosis. His illness was so severe, he spent months on end in ICU beds and was even read his last rites before taking control of his care and tracking down and repurposing an existing decades-old drug that eventually saved his life and pushed him into remission. Dr. Fagenbaum is the co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, assistant professor of medicine and translational medicine and human genetics at the University of Pennsylvania, associate director of patient impact for the Penn Orphan Disease Center, and author of the national best-selling book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Let's talk about the state of rare disease. All right, David, thanks for, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So talk to us uh, about Castleman disease. What is your, your elevator pitch for what it means to be living with the condition? Sure. It's an immune system disorder where basically your immune system attacks and shuts down your vital organs just out of nowhere. It goes after your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart, your lungs. Um, it's relentless and it's, it's deadly. Um, a third of us will die within five years of diagnosis and another third within 10 years of diagnosis. So living with Castleman disease, as, as, as you and I have discussed, I was diagnosed with it while I was a medical student and nearly died five times in a three and a half year period. Um, but thankfully I'm doing well now, but living with Castleman disease means that I know that at any moment it can come back. And at any moment I can end up back in the ICU with multi-organ system failure. So is it something you're born with? Is it acquired? You know, is, is, you know, where, you know, should I be worried about it myself? You know, what, what, uh, what is, what is the, uh, the state of Castleman disease research and, and diagnostic? Sure. So it's called idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease. Idiopathic means that we don't know the cause. So it might be something that I was born with that I inherited from my parents, or it might be something that I acquired a mutation that occurred during my life, a virus that I encountered. Um, we don't know. We've been studying that extensively for, um, for the last eight years. And we've, we've made progress in understanding what's going on. Like why is the immune system doing what it's doing, but we still haven't gotten to the etiology underlying this whole phenomenon. So we've, we've got work to do, but, um, but the data suggests generally that, um, that patients typically um, do not inherit it from their parents, or at least there typically aren't multiple people in the family. So it seems to be more quote unquote sporadic. Gotcha. So you now you wrote a book about it. You wrote a book about your life with Kassman going from the diagnosis to eventually tracking down a, a treatment that sort, sort of seems to be working, um, chasing my cure, a doctor's race uh, to turn hope into action. And one thing you detail uh, is your path from a division one quarterback at Georgetown to next thing you know, you're a rare disease champion. You know, everyone in the rare disease world knows who you are. 
Um, what was that pathway like from, you know, being a superstar athlete to, you know, dealing with critical illness, you know, spending God knows how much time in the ICU. Thank, thanks so much, Gunnery. Um, I, I particularly appreciate you calling me a superstar athlete. As a quarterback at Georgetown, I don't know if if, if, <laughs> um, if Georgetown falls into the, that sort of category, but um, but no, it, it was it was so difficult to go from being this healthy third year medical student, former college athlete that was so healthy. Um, I was at the time a medical student wanting to become an oncologist. I wanted to treat cancer patients in memory of my mom who had died just a few years before. And to go from, you know, kind of achieving this dream that I set out to honor her memory to all of a sudden becoming an ICU patient myself. And, and I think, as you mentioned, also having my last rites read to me in November of 2010, because my doctors were certain that I wasn't going to survive. It was so difficult. I mean, I, difficult just feels like the ultimate understatement to describe how, how awful it was. Um, months in the ICU on, in, in critical condition, um, being kept alive by medical technology and months of that time without a diagnosis, no one knew what it was that was trying to kill me. And even when the diagnosis came, um, there were so few treatment options that, um, that I continued to have relapses and continue to spend months and months hospitalized. But over the course of my journey, I learned so many lessons about life and about fighting back. And that's why I wrote Chasing My Cures because here, here I was uh, a few years out and thinking to myself, I am so lucky to be alive. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. And so all of these life lessons that have fundamentally changed who I am, I need to get them on paper and get them out to people. We'll be right back with Dr. David Fagenbaum. You know, one of the things that you, you comment on in your sort of path from, of course, diagnosis towards, you know, being in the ICU and sort of making a great comeback is the lack of infrastructure that exists in the rare disease world. You know, not only from, you know, basic science and research perspective with a lot of conditions or undiagnosable conditions, but from an organizational level also, you know, often uh, organizations or, you know, associations representing population populations are like mom and pop shops yeah. in, in the rare disease space. And you know, maybe a little bit of a, a crude joke, but I always say that if there was ever a genetic condition to be born with, it's CF, simply because of the infrastructure that we do have in the condition. Mm -hmm. We have a clinical trial network. We have a very successful venture philanthropy financing operation going on basic science is well understood or about as yep. understood as it could possibly be for a rare disease. Uh, it's easy to enroll clinical trials. There's a lot of cash going into, into the basic science, but that's just not true for all rare diseases. And it sort of sounds like you started to confront that reality uh, not long after your diagnosis, when you started just diving into the medical literature, like, and what was that journey like? Yeah, it was um, so surprising to learn that what you described in CF is just so phenomenal, um, but unfortunately so rare in the rare disease community. I was, I was shocked, frankly. I was a third-year medical student, and I had this belief that you know, for every medical problem, there must be researchers working together to solve them. And there must be, you know, collaboration happening because these are terrible diseases that are killing people. Like, of course, you know, all of these entities must be working together. And then, and then I learned um, really rapidly um, that you're exactly right, that for the vast majority of rare diseases, 
there are not coordinated networks of people working together. There are not researchers. There's not progress and in infrastructure towards figuring out treatments and solutions for these awful diseases. And um, that's actually what really motivated me first to start the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network to try to bring together physicians, researchers, and patients to drive forward science and, and to really rethink the way that we do research. So a lot of um, these very small rare diseases like Castleman's um, we used to, to raise money and then hope that the right researcher applied for the right project at the right time. And when you have three people applying for your grant funding, what's sure. the chance that any one of those three is going to have the best idea in the world and, and the, the skill set to, to solve it is very unlikely. And um, so we said, okay, well, we got to figure out a new way to, to, to address this. What if we can get all the stakeholders together, we can get ideas from all of them on what should be done. And then let's go ahead and recruit the best people in the world to do it, whether they even know what Castleman disease is. And frankly, a number of these researchers I went to, I said, I want you to do the Castleman's research, do this study based on what you've done. And, and their first question is, what's Castleman disease? And it's like, <laughs> oh gosh, we're off. To, we're not off to a good start. But but that is, that, that's just so fundamental to, to why I'm talking to you today. I'm alive today because we went from waiting and hoping for some researcher or some doctor somewhere to figure something out to saying that I, I want to turn my hope into action. And as you mentioned, that's the subtitle of the book is mm -hmm. Dr. Ray's turn hope into action is to say, if I'm going to hope for treatment, if I'm going to hope for progress, we've got to take action. Though I should say it was a bit reluctant. I mean, I, I didn't want to have to do this work. I, I knew that it was unlikely that I would be able to make progress. I didn't want to spend my last few weeks or months, maybe years, fighting a battle that I thought was unlikely I could, I could actually win. I wanted there to be a network. I wanted, you know, some other group to do it, but I realized at a certain point um, that that was the only chance I had. Now, along, alongside of that, something that also struck me from the book was your desire to find an existing treatment to apply to your own diagnosis, which is runs, you know, counter to my experience with CF, yep. where for us, it's all about finding novel therapeutics, you know, creating and innovating and developing technologies uh, to address, you know, not only CF symptom management, but also, but the underlying uh, problem uh, of CF, the, the protein dysfunction at the heart of the heart of the disease. Um, that was, that was an interesting spin on, on things. And you also went as far in the book to talk about how patients need drugs to address medical problems. And there's value in that. Why did you feel like you could pursue that path rather than wait for science to catch up and invent something for you? I mean, frankly, I would love for there to have been a network um, to be able to discover this new and perfect drug for Castleman disease. Um, but I knew that the network didn't exist and I knew that time was against me. And um, I mean, I, I knew I was relapsing every several months to, to maybe I could have a year of remission at a time. And so I knew that I had to like measure like the time to a solution in weeks to months. And I couldn't measure it in years to decades, which is the typical timeline for new drug development. And so it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to, to focus on drug repurposing. It was just that that was the only option I had for survival. And I was really blown away because I'm sitting here thinking, okay, the only reason I'm alive right now is because I got these different chemotherapy drugs that are not approved for Castleman disease. My doctor just was like, you're dying. I'm going to just give you every chemotherapy I can think of at mm -hmm. once at the highest dose I can. And let's see if it destroys your immune system and saves your life. So like, well, wait a minute, if none of those drugs are approved for Castleman's and they save my life, like 
maybe there's another drug other than chemotherapy that might be out there that could save my life. And so that created this um, drive within me to try to find something out there that maybe could help me. And, and, you know, a certain, a big motivation for me was that um, I was dating um, uh, my girlfriend at the time, Caitlin, and, and I so badly wanted to get married to her and, and maybe even have a family one day. And so I had this incredible partner by my side and I had this dream for a future in front of me. And I knew that the only way that I was going to get there was if I studied my samples and I identified something wrong in my samples that maybe could be fixed with an existing drug. And I also knew that it was really unlikely that I was going to find something, but I, I really felt that like the I wanted to go out swinging. And if I, if I wasn't going to find something, at least I would know that I did everything I could. So <clears throat> that's an interesting, an interesting point that you essentially talked about taking control of your care, directing, you know, the study of your care. Uh, and one thing that I often talk to about, you know, talk to patients and families about is overcoming the technical barrier between clinicians and patients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, that barrier could be as wide as the Grand Canyon or as yep. narrow as, you know, a backyard creek. Uh, <laughs> I think that has a lot to do with uh, uh, just a, a long culture in the medical establishment. But you're unique because you're the, the very, very rare, speaking of rare things, the patient physician researcher, you know, you fall into all three buckets and you were able to control your care and understand the nuances of the medical jargon, having been fresh out of medical school. Is that something that can be reproduced for lifelong and career patients? And importantly, should it? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I'll say for me, even as a third year medical student, I really struggled with the complexity of the disease with kind of the the challenges of dealing with your doctors and how to, you know, when to talk, speak up and when not to speak up and, you know, when to get second opinions, I, I really struggled with it. And so I, I really do um, appreciate and understand just how tough this is. And I'm, I'm glad that you give that advice to, to patients. I often um, try to give my best advice in that realm as well. I think that the key is not for all of us to kind of feel like we need to become patient doctor researchers, it, it, like like, I don't think we need to theoretically feel like we need to achieve that. I think what we need to really try to do is to find a partner physician who can really be our partner so that they, and that they appreciate and they respect our perspective as patients and they encourage, and they bring out the, they bring out all of the information that we can bring to bear as patients. And so, like I said, it's, it's not so much that I think you as a patient should feel the responsibility that you have to learn the molecular mechanisms of your disease. But I think what you should do is try your best to find a doctor who wants to be your partner. And sometimes it's not, and usually it's not really your first, the first doctor you see, mm -hmm. sometimes you have to see multiple doctors um, to find that person who's really going to be your partner. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And, you know, I've, 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 my own life, I've been following my CF care in a number of different places, just based on, you know, where I live currently mm -hmm. in New Hampshire right now, not something I ever thought I'd be doing, but it's like transitioning care from one center to the next. And you learn how different people treat the same thing. And, yep. you know, ideally you would wish that there's continued care and there's no differences from one place to the next. But the truth is those yep. differences do kind of exist. And as a result, you got to be able to talk the language, you know, and understand uh, how to articulate your goals to your care team so that you can get the best possible outcome uh, that you personally want from, from your care.
When we come back, we'll hear how Dr. Fagenbaum's work in Castleman disease is getting put to use in the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to move now past, uh, you know, some of the some of the old days when you were first kind of dealing with Castleman's disease, and what you're you're doing now is is really kind of important. It's almost like you're using that experience that you had uh, living with Castleman disease in the early days and applying that to the pandemic. You know, in some ways, the pandemic has put a, a spotlight on drug repurposing, and that's now something that you're kind of involved with, in my understanding, with the Corona Project. Uh, and almost in a lot of ways, it seems like you're the person, per the perfect person for it. Um, you know, can you talk to us about how you're applying past lessons, uh, living with very severe illness to, to our current global health crisis? Sure. So, um, you know, just as you said, I'm, I'm, I'm alive today because of this repurposed drug that I eventually found. And, and the reason that I found this existing drug that could save my life is because we did really in-depth investigations of my immune system. And then we asked the question, what drugs are already FDA approved that might be able to fix that problem? So I found that this one communication line was turned on. And so I said, is there a drug that can turn it off? And amazingly, there is. There's this drug that's been around for 30 years called serolimus. It had never been used before for Castleman's. And so we started testing it on me. And, and I'm, uh, it's been over seven years now that I've been in remission. And so this sort of concept that if you can really understand what's going on in patients with a disease, really probe their, the biology of, of the disease, and then ask what drugs are FDA approved. And then the third step is to sy systematically evaluate, did that drug work or not? That's been our playbook. I, like I said earlier, I'm alive because of that playbook, those three steps. And so You'll remember very well, Friday, the 13th of March, 2010 was the day that the U.S. shut down. That was the day that the pandemic really erupted. And um, I was actually uh, traveling to see my brother-in-law, um, who, who um, sadly passed away from uh, another rare disease this past year. But I, I really wanted to see him um, when I knew that the world was shutting down. And so my, my wife and I were driving down to see my brother-in-law um, that day. And I remember hearing these reports of how awful this pandemic is and, um, you know, the effects it has on the immune system. Um, in fact, uh, the patients that die from COVID typically die because their immune system is um, having an overabundant response. It's, it's, a, it's what's called a cytokine storm, which is actually exactly what happens in Castleman's. And I found myself hoping that some researchers somewhere would follow our blueprint. I was thinking, you know, I hope that they follow our, our you know, three-step approach and that maybe they've even read Chasing My Cure and they know how we did this for Castleman disease. You know, I really hope some researcher somewhere does that. And then like a minute later, I just thought to myself, wait a minute. I'm alive because I stopped hoping that some researcher somewhere would do Castleman's and I just said, well, we're going to do it. And so I reached out to my team um, uh, that Monday and, and basically said, you know, uh, are, are you guys in? And, and, and they were. And so not only did I turn to my center here at Penn, the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory, but also the Castleman's Disease Collaborative Network. And then we opened it up to volunteers around the United States. And we launched the Corona Project, which is um, the largest effort globally to bring together all data on all drugs being tried for COVID-19. So we've all heard about a few drugs like hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, that have been uh, in the media a lot, but actually there've been over 500 different drugs that have been tried for COVID. And outside of the Corona Project, there is no central database that tracks all of these different drugs and identifies the drugs that look most promising and least promising. And so we started out saying, we're gonna do a 10 day challenge. We're gonna go through thousands of papers in 10 
days. And we did that in early April and we realized we couldn't stop there. We were like, well, I hope someone else somewhere takes this on. Maybe the government will, but until then, I guess we should just keep doing this. And, and here we are, you know, almost a year and a half later. And, um, we're providing that data to the NIH and the FDA um, for really important decisions. And so, uh, as you said, it really was this feeling of, okay, I've spent the last decade trying to understand a hyperimmune response and to figure out drugs that could be effective at treating it and then systematically tracking whether they work. That's exactly what we're facing right now with COVID. And um, again, I would have, you know, kind of loved to sit on the sidelines and, um, you know, I was a bit reluctant to, to put so much focus towards this because it did mean taking time away from Castleman's. Um, but at the same time, I realized um, reluctantly um, that, you know, if, if we didn't do it, I didn't think anyone else would. And have you been able to measure any success with the Corona Project yet? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in a few realms, first off of the 500 drugs that are in the database, um, only four of them um, do we consider them to have achieved grade A evidence um, based on all of the clinical trials. Um, and actually the grade A evidence in our database aligns almost perfectly with what the NIH and with what other professional organizations are recommending. So the data set can is very strong good and, and reproducible at determining what drugs are working, which ones aren't. Um, so, so first off, you know, we align with professional organizations, which is good because that means that you can then infer that continuing to follow our data is a good way to infer whether a drug is likely to work or not. Secondly, really one of the main goals for this was to be able to use it to identify drugs that look really promising to move into trials. And so um, I was really excited um, a few months ago that the active six trial, which is the U.S.'s largest study of COVID-19, used the Corona database to select the drugs for that trial. And so it's an over $100 million clinical trial that NIH is rolling out. And the Corona Project data was the primary data source that we used to select drugs. And so um, um, we obviously have to see what the results of that trial are. Um, but if any one of those drugs uh, is found to be effective, um, it's, it's hard not to say that the reason that that drug was used was because of this data set. So um, it's, been, it's been great to be able to bring some data to this debate, which has unfortunately been quite data-free in a lot of cases. Well, David, you're a classic example of using patient experience as a valuable resource in healthcare. And I think that's uh, something that's not talked about enough. You know, I, uh, you know, we, I know we both have uh, worked with Global Genes in the past. I was at the, the rare disease, the rare disease patient conference a few years ago, and I, and I said something to the effect that patients are the most underutilized resource in healthcare. And I think uh, talking to you today is certainly proof to that fact. So uh, my hat is off to you. But before I let you go, where can people learn about? Uh, the Corona Project, the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, and, and everything else that you're working on. Sure. So you can go to cdcn.org, and that'll give you all the information you might want about the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. You can go to cdcn.org slash corona to learn about the Corona Project, and you can go to chasingmycure.com or um, your favorite local bookstore to pick up a copy of Chasing My Cure. And you know, I just hope that um, listeners will um, help to, to spread this message of hope. And, and it's, it's not just a message of hope. It's a message of, of turning hope into action. And that's so often when we are struggling with really tough times, um, we feel paralyzed and it's hard to take action. Um, and sometimes actually being hopeful um, can, can stop us from taking action because we just believe that someone somewhere is going to figure something out for us. Um, but this message of turning hope into action, I think is so important, whether it's 
you're dealing with a pandemic or you're dealing with a rare disease, um, we, we've all got to, uh, to take those steps, which I know you encourage your listeners and, and, and your colleagues to do. And, it, and it's, it's just so amazing. So thanks so much for the time today. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, David. That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at G17Esiason, and you can check out my website at GunnarEsiason.com. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the State of Health and then leave a rating and a review. A big thank you to Dr. David Fagenbaum for today's interview. You can check out the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network at cdcn.org. The State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. See you next week.